Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You know, uh, often on our show we talk about the importance of Jerusalem as a center of religious life for the Jewish people, for Christianity, and of course for Islam. And we try and avoid, whenever possible, talking about the politics in Israel. But recently, the politics of Jerusalem and religion found an intersection, and I thought it would be an opportunity for us to chat about a very controversial topic for many in the religious world. Recently, there was a gay pride uh, march in the holy city of Jerusalem. The chief rabbi of Jerusalem um, spoke out uh, against uh, the gay pride um, parade. Um, In the Jerusalem Post, the headline read, uh, Jerusalem chief rabbi, pride parade is causing more damage than benefit. And uh, the chief rabbi, Aryeh Stern, said, according to the article, the essence of this parade is contradicting the trend of Jerusalem as a holy city. Holding the LBGT pride parade in the streets of Jerusalem is contradictory as its characteristics of a holy city. Uh, The rabbi stressed that he objects and condemns any form of violence against the parade, but believes there is no room for such events in Jerusalem. It is sad, said the rabbi, that a couple of days after Tisha B'Av, when masses visited Jerusalem and remembered it being a holy city, the essence of this parade is contradicting the trend of Jerusalem as a holy city, and that is the city that we want. Rabbi Stern continued in a radio broadcast to say, My views are known when it comes to violence. I participated in the memorial ceremony for Shira Banki, a young woman who was killed during last year's gay pride parade when an individual um, took off um, at members, uh, participants in the gay pride parade, and uh, Shira Banki was fatally wounded. Uh, He says, the rabbi, I participated in the memorial service and I came to her house to console the grieving family, but holding the parade in the city's streets is causing more damage to its supporters than benefiting them. Sarah Kala, CEO of LGBT Advocacy, NGO, the Jerusalem Open House for Pride and Tolerance, told the Jerusalem Post in response to the chief rabbi's comments that this comes as an answer, namely this parade, to all those who claim to oppose the LBGT community in the name of religion. Our main message is no, that is not our way of practicing religion, said Sarah Kala. There are many religious people who are willing to accept the LGBT community, and we intend that the parade will be a platform for dialogue and understanding, not for hatred. And then um, the article indicates that um, 
the parade um, will be picketed by extreme right groups um, who have police permission to have a counter protest um, and that um, very often that um, their cause in the Jerusalem is their theme is that Jerusalem is not Sodom and that they support the government's bill in the Israeli parliament to prohibit same-sex couples from adopting children. Well, all of that is very modern and current and is taking place as we speak. But I want to take a step back and see if we can um, extrapolate from Jewish tradition the varieties of positions that Judaism has um, expressed regarding this very controversial topic, or controversial topic for some, um, in terms of uh, lifestyle choices. And so I want to begin, as we often do on this program, by referring to the sources, and then move from the ancient to the rabbinic period, and hopefully to the modern period. You know, in the creation story found in uh, Genesis 1, in uh, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, we read, it is not good for human beings to be alone. God offers to solve this existential dilemma by creating a fitting helper for him, according to the text. In uh, the text, it says, from Adam's rib, God fashioned a woman. Of the union between man and woman, it states, hence a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife so that they become one flesh. I think in all traditions that uh, value the Hebrew scripture, we would accept that um, phraseology as... Um, creating man and woman as a pillar of one of the most cherished institutions of Western civilization, marriage. The deepest and most meaningful human relationships understood to exist uniquely in the heterosexual bond between man and women were firm and concretized in marriage, as the Torah suggests. On the strength and vitality of the marriage commitment, families were created, homes established, and the future of society secured. The details of this relationship and the ethics associated with it have developed in both Judaism, Christianity, and Islam for the past thousands of years. While a significant part of contemporary society is still guided by this biblical perspective, there is a large segment of our society that seeks recognition and legitimacy in different kinds of relationships. I speak here of same-sex relationships. And we have moved a significant way from the earliest uh, readings of the Torah and rabbinic 
literature with regard to same-sex relationships um, to where we find ourselves today in the position that uh, churches and synagogues uh, have clergy who are um, people in same-sex relationships um, and to speak about the loving nature of same-sex relationships and speak about the uh, biblical origins and uh, the sanctity of these relationships. Many clergy um, from the LBGT community contend that only in the context of such relationships can their need for companionship be fulfilled. They claim that their sexual preference is not a matter of choice, that God created them this way, and according to this view, God could not require people to act contrary to their very nature, that God created and that it is a God-given component of their being. And if a homosexual-lesbian relationship is monogamous, guided by mutual care and love, why should it not be afforded the same religious status as a heterosexual one? Even today, while civil rights in this country and equal opportunities are made for same-sex partners and discrimination against people by virtue of um, sexual preference is illegal in Canada, society is confronted with these challenges. One need only look to the United States and other countries to recognize that um, our country's acceptance is not universally accepted. And so I thought this morning that we would take some time to look at the ancient tradition regarding uh, same-sex marriages. And uh, I want to begin with a modern dilemma that confronted the conservative rabbis about a decade ago. We've often spoken on our show about the differences between reform, conservative, and orthodox religious movements in North America and throughout the world. But for those who are new to the broadcast, simply say that the conservative movement sits in the middle between the orthodox, which accepts all of the traditional laws as enunciated by Torah and the rabbis, and the reform, which does not seem though seem to make those laws binding, and the conservative, which sees those laws as binding, but recognizes the need for change even beyond that which is accepted by the rabbinic tradition. So in 2006, the conservative movement had to vote on what they called gay issues. The top lawmaking body of conservative Judaism met together to vote on whether there should be an acceptance of same-sex marriages and the ordination of openly gay and lesbian clergy. The Committee on Law and Standards, a 25-member panel of rabbis and lay leaders, um, decided to revisit its 1992 consensus statement. 
Now, this is going back a decade. The article suggests in recent years, pressures to reopen the issue has come from lay people throughout the movement, as well as from rabbinical students and some rabbis. Any change approved by the law committee is likely to force the issue of gay ordination onto center stage at the movement's seminaries. And according to one member of the law committee, the group will consider four separate opinions relating to the historical ban on homosexuality stemming from Leviticus 18.22, which states, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman, it is abomination. Two of the decisions upholding prohibitions against homosexual sex relationships and ordination, one overturns an all-gay-related prohibitions, and another interprets the biblical verse as a narrow prohibition against particular sexual acts while permitting homosexual affection and relationships in general, as well as gay unions and ordinations. This took place nearly um, 10 years ago. And it served as a background for the conservative movement to say um, that an honest disagreement is an essential component of conservative Judaism, even if that means multiple opinions being accepted. Well, in a pluralistic world in which we live, um, it is forever, our world is in forever need of reconsidering its boundaries and attitudes. So too, in 2017, the leadership of today's Jewish denominations worldwide are being challenged by, to do the same. In the article that I quoted from, in, from 2006, the conservative movement found itself in the throes of reconsidering its position on same-sex marriages um, and the ordination of homosexuals. Uh, while simultaneously cognizant of the pressure from lay people and rabbis in the movement, the law committee um, faced a formidable challenge. What would they do with the sections from Leviticus? So let me now take a moment to remind you of those sections from Leviticus, and I'm going to quote to you from Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. So in Leviticus 20, verse 13, we find the following. If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed an abomination. They must be put to death. Their blood is on their own hands. And in verse chapter 18, verse 22, we have a similar phrase. You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. This comes, of course, what's called in uh, the holiness code. And these are the only biblical references to homosexuality. In both sources of Leviticus, it is prohibited. Both consider homosexual behavior to'ava, usually translated as abomination. The first text that I shared with you appears inside a passage where at its conclusion it is reco recorded in Vaigikra 18.29 that whoever engages in any of these to'avot 
a word that occurs a total of five times in chapter 18, will not only be cut off from the rest of the people, karet, which is the Jewish understanding of excommunication, but will cause the whole people to be tossed out of the land. The second verse prescribes capital punishment for violating this law. No qualifications or stipulations are stated. At face value, the Tanakh categorically prohibits homosexuality. But as you, my listeners, know, Judaism did not stop with the Tanakh. The Tanakh um, offered to us what I've called Israelite religion, which was focused on an ancient understanding of the relationship between the Jewish people and Adonai. And after the destruction of the temple in 70 of the Common Era, rabbinic Judaism um, emerged, and there we turn to the rabbis and how they understood the biblical uh, explanation and how they understood um, the interpret how they interpreted the biblical phrases. So we turn to the Talmud, that compilation of teachings in the third and sixth century, uh, written by scholars in Babylonia. I'm going to quote: Bar Kapara asked Rabbi, "What is meant by Toeva?" Bar Kapara refuted every explanation of the word to'ava that Rabbi offered. So Rabbi said to him, explain it yourself, he replied. Let your wife come and pour me a drink. She came and poured me a drink, upon which he said to Rabbi, arise and dance for me that I may tell it to you. Thus said the divine law, to'eva to'e'ata'ba. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Yes, to'e to'ata'ba. So the first step to understanding the Tanakh is to understand the terminology that it chose to use regarding same-sex relationships. So in this section from Talmud, one individual named Bar Kapara raises the question, what does to'ava mean? And the Talmud relates that Bar Kapara proceeded to reject every explanation offered by the individual known as Rabbi until the finally gave up. It's hard to imagine that these two learned men would have trouble with the literal translation of the word. It appears, rather, that Bar Kapara had a novel understanding of the word and its specific relationship to the prohibition of homosexuality that he wanted to share with Rabbi, his teacher. The flair and the drama that Bar Kapara utilizes, asking for a cup, asking the rabbi to dance, are meant to cause merriment for all standing around. And there are two reasons for this rejoicing. First, he sees his revelation as a cause to celebrate because he has solved a problem that has bothered him, and perhaps others for quite a time. Then he asks for a drink to set the stage for rejoicing at the newfound understanding. But secondly... Bar Kapara wants to cause joy because the setting in which this discussion takes place is the occasion of the wedding of the rabbi's son, Shimon. 
In presenting his insight into the passage prohibiting various sexual relations, because the Torah goes on, the Talmud goes on to expound on this. So, what explanation does he offer? He claims that he has found the answer by analyzing the word as if it were a contraction comprised of three words that mean you are going astray in this matter. If this sounds enigmatic, it is. But he wants to have his listener, his reader, his learners not see the Hebrew word as abomination. That's too direct. That's too closed. That's too precise a translation. He says this word, to'ava, is a contraction of three words, to'e ataba. You are going astray. So what does that mean? What does it mean? Because he doesn't offer any explanation. So we have an explanation for from Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, writing in the 13th and 14th century, who says, To'ataba refers to those who abandon their wives and indulge in homosexuality. And in the 19th and 20th century, we have another rabbi, Baruch HaLevi Epstein, who says, you are going astray from the foundations of creation. And then finally, we have a um, 14th century commentator who writes the following. Of the roots of this precept, the eternal Lord, blessed be he, desires the the world to be created, be settled, and therefore he commands us not to destroy human seed by sexual relations with others for which there is no possibility of producing offspring. Well, what does all that mean? So the first explanation is you are going astray. The second explanation suggests that um, leaving one's wife for another type of relationship is the evil here. He says, it is reprehensible to to be married to a woman while one's interests are in another man. Rabbi Asher may be referring to the sin itself, but he may also be referred to being led astray by the sin. The second author, Rabbi Epstein, emphasizes that um, this is um, different from the foundation of creation. And the third offers two explanations. The first is, that human beings are endowed with procreative faculties in order to settle the world. And therefore, anything that doesn't follow the path to replicate um, the world, to repopulate the world, is in itself being led astray. All three of these rabbis, if you listen carefully, are not interested in proclaiming homosexuality itself as evil, but rather are trying to figure out why the Torah 
would not see this as part of um, the society that it wished to create. Much more complicated than seeing it in evil. Now, those of you who've listened carefully this morning have noticed that the Torah speaks seems to only speak about male male relationships, which we identify as homosexual. What about relationships between two women? Maimonides in the uh, 13th century, one of the greatest um, commentators in the history of Judaism, beginning his work in Spain and then in Egypt, wrote the following, women are forbidden to have relationships with one another. This is the practice of the land of Egypt, against which we have been warned. As it says in Exodus 18.3, like the practice of the land of Egypt, you shall not do. The sages said, what did they do? A man marries a man, a woman marries a woman, and a woman marries two men. So that's what the sages said were the Egyptian practices that the Israelites should stay away from. And Maimonides continues to say, although this practice is forbidden, no flogging is imposed since there is no specific negative commandment against it, nor is there any understood to him sexual intercourse. Consequently, women are not forbidden to the priesthood on account of harlotry, nor is a woman prohibited to her husband on account of it, since there is no harlotry. Um, Well, Maimonides finally ends by saying, a man should be strict with his wife in this matter and should prevent women who are known to engage in this practice from visiting her and preventing her from going astray. You can tell, if you listen, that this is one of the first um, episodes of same-sex relations for women that is um, expressed in Judaism. And Maimonides goes out of the way to suggest um, that there is no biblical prohibition against this. He does say that same-sex relationships are prohibited, but he then goes on to make a sociological statement about the specific practice among married women, specifically ignoring the possibility that there might be relationships uh, with unmarried women. It's impossible to do a complete analysis of rabbinic studies on this topic, but I would like to suggest that if one were to look at the nuances that um, among all this rabbinic commentary, one would say that it's clear that the rabbis of the later times were uncomfortable um, imposing the biblical prohibition in their own times, which of course leads us to the modern time. If you um, have um, same-sex relationships Um, Can we simply prohibit them as the rabbi in Jerusalem seems to do based on the ancient Levitical statements? And Jewish tradition has looked for ways to acknowledge that God's human beings are all, that human beings are all God's creation. And that as long as human beings do not hurt one another, 
that they do what is good and what is just, that their behaviors are not to be rejected. I know that is different from some ways that Jewish tradition are understood, but I think it flows directly from the mainstream of Jewish thought. I hope that we'll have other opportunities to talk about the more modern interpretations of this topic, and I urge you to check out some of the news reports regarding the gay pride um, parade in Jerusalem this month. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day and shalom. Shalom, 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 shalom